Well, welcome to Grace again. I'm so glad you're here. We're going to continue a series that we started. If you're just joining us, we've been walking through the book of Colossians. It's a New Testament book. It's a very small letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a pretty cool little church in Colossae. And so a lot of churches, people don't know this, when they were first launched, actually met in people's homes. They weren't really big gatherings. They were actually smaller gatherings. So it's neat when you start to look at the Apostle Paul's writings and how he was writing to the local church and what he had to say. So if you're just joining us, you can still catch up. We're just finishing chapter one of this book. And so the reading plan should be at the welcome desk. You can grab that if you'd like to catch up and follow along. And what we've been doing is we've been trying not to really teach on anything you haven't had the opportunity to read. So that way you can read it, you can kind of know what's coming, and then that way it'll help you. Today's message has got a very interesting title. Uh, Jake was like, are you sure? He goes, are you mad or angry? I'm like, no. When I looked at the text, (laughs) it just sends kind of this idea inside the text that there's three characteristics I want to talk about. And so today's message is titled, (laughs) and void being an exclusive egg-headed wimp, okay? So we're avoiding colossal mistakes. And I think one of the colossal mistakes that can happen, especially in the church, is you can get a little wimpy in your faith. I see it happen. You can also get to a point where you're pretty egg-headed. Egg-headed meaning just like a whole bunch of knowledge without a lot of application. And so we can also, if we're not careful, become exclusive for a lot of different reasons inside the, in the church. And so when you think about Jesus, I want you to think about what we were just praying, what we were just singing, what we were talking about. Jesus was none of these things. He wasn't necessarily elite. He definitely wasn't exclusive. And he was not a wimpy guy at all. This was a construction kind of guy. I know sometimes we see that, you know, the people that portray Jesus on TV, I'm thinking Jesus more had like the Arnold Schwarzenegger physique. You know what I'm saying? This was a man's man. And he went after things with all of his passion and all his zeal. He's also someone who was very grounded and loved the people. He loved the people. And so he was always taking things that were profoundly spiritual, but he was breaking them down in such a way that everyone could understand and everyone could sink their teeth into, which was very opposite of the Jewish elite. I was talking to a friend last week who had started to read the Bible and they're starting to really try to dig into it and understand it for the very first time in their life. And they're like, I didn't realize how harsh Jesus was with certain people. And I'm like, yeah. And if you narrowed in on who he's harsh with, He's harsh with the egg-headed elite. That's who he's harsh with because they were so far from where the people were and it really irritated him. And then you got this guy, Paul, who now is really trying to take this new life that's been birthed inside of him. He was a person who was a part of the Jewish elite and he takes this Jewish elitism that's inside of him. He's the hyper-educated guy. He's got his PhD. He knows everything there is to know about the Old Testament. You couldn't win an argument with this guy if you tried. And now his life has been radically transformed, and he's trying to say, keep it simple. He's trying to break things down and really relate to where people are, and he's really starting to embody the heart of who Jesus is. In fact, uh, John and I talk about this. A famous, well, not famous, but a guy who impacted my life in preaching told me years ago, I don't care how much education you get, I don't care how much you start to understand, always put the jam on the bottom shelf where everybody can get to it. And that's what's at the heart of this passage, Now, one of the problems when we look at what's at the heart of this passage is it's translated. So understand your Bible that you have was translated by someone. If you have an English Bible, someone translated so you could have it in English. And sometimes things get lost. That's just reality. They're not lost to God, but they're lost sometimes in translation. So let me give you an example in case you're Spanish speaking. In certain Spanish cultures, I love this phrase. It's one of the coolest phrases that you start to learn when you're around people that are Spanish. There's a great phrase called todo bien. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Spanish speakers? Good. So, todo bien. 
Now, if I translate that literally, word for word in the order in which I put it together, what does it come out as? It comes out as all good. Now, if I just say all good and looked at you, you're like, what's wrong with you, right? But if I said, hey, how are you doing? Is everything okay? Or is it all good? Now it makes more sense, doesn't it? This is the problem sometimes with what we call word-for-word literal translation. If you don't believe me, just copy it into Google and see what kind of weird stuff comes out, okay? And what we would call putting it into a contemporary language, putting it into a contemporary place. This is what we have in this passage. And we were studying this passage together with some of our friends. We were looking at it, and we're like, the word-for-word translation really loses something. And let me, let me be very careful with this because I'm not a scholar and I respect the scholars that we get to read and that we get to learn from. But there's just something here that you can begin to see is not right. Now, if you want the technical words for it, I'm going to give them to you because some of you like to geek out and you can go research this later. But here are the two geeky words, what's called formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. Blah, okay? Now, let me give it to you in layman's terms. Word for word, thought for thought. So when people translate the Bible, are they trying to go word for word in the exact order that was in the Greek or, or Aramaic or Hebrew? Or are they saying, here's the thought. Let me give you my interpretation of the thought. Now, here's the beauty of this. Sometimes the person writing your Bible and their interpretation from thought to thought gets it even better than the word for word. Sometimes they get a little bit too much of themselves in it. Both are true. One's not more true than the other. And sometimes the word for word makes you think harder about the passage. Now, why is this all important to you? Because this really hits our passage today. And so I'm going to share with you a version of the Bible called The Message. The Message was uh, translated by a guy named Eugene Peterson, who actually was in Baltimore. He had a church in Baltimore for years. And his heart behind this translation, as some of our people know, was to make the Bible more accessible to people that didn't necessarily have all the education and have the egghead. In fact, he said, my people needed the Bible given to them in a way they could eat it. They could digest it. He spent 20 years of his ministry as a local pastor who also had a degree in the languages, presenting the Bible in a way that he was hoping people would grab onto better. And sometimes he hits it and sometimes he misses it. That's just life. That's like all of us, right? I really think he hit a home run in this part of Colossians. And so if you've got a Bible, you put it up. But I've also given you the version of the message in your notes. And you can compare them. And I think when you compare these to the literal, you're going to see there's a beauty in the way that he breaks this down for people to understand. So this is out of the message. This is 1 Corinthians. We're coming to the very end of the chapter. So just 24 through 29. And listen how Eugene Peterson renders this passage. He says, I want you to know how glad I am that it's me sitting here in jail and not you. There's a lot of suffering to be entered into this world, the kind of suffering Christ takes on. I welcome the chance to take my share in the church's part of that suffering. When I became a servant in this church, I experienced this suffering as a sheer gift, God's way of helping me serve you, laying out the whole truth. This mystery has been kept in the dark for a long time, but now it's out in the open. God wanted everyone, not just Jews, to know this rich and glorious secret inside and out. Regardless of their background, regardless of their religious standing, the mystery in a nutshell is this. Christ is in you, so therefore you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. It's that simple. That's the substance of our message. We preach Christ, warning people not to add to the message. We teach in a spirit of profound common sense so that we can bring each person to maturity. To be mature is to be basic, Christ, 
No more, no less. That's what I'm working so hard at day after day, year after year, doing my best with the energy God has so generously, or God has generously gives me. So this is the paraphrase. This is someone who said, I'm going to give you thought for thought what I think the original author was trying to communicate to this original church. And let me give you three ideas around this that I think will shape our idea of how to not be a wimpy, exclusive, egg-headed Christian. Okay, here's the first one. Suffering is a joy for the mystical body of Christ. Suffering is a joy for the mystical body of Christ. Now, there's some things to break down there that are pretty cool. So this is the part of avoid making Christianity wimpy. In America, one of the things that we've done, whether we know it or not, is we've made Christianity safe. We've made it more about being safe than actually being on the mission that was originally Jesus' mission. And I'm going to break that down in a second, but let me show you why it was important we use the message, again, instead of a word-for-word, using a paraphrase. In the NIV, look at how this is rendered. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. There's nothing wrong with this. This is a beautiful translation. But depending on your, your grounding, how long you've been a Christian, how much of Scripture you've read, you read this, and the first thing you say is, wait a minute, Christ is lacking somehow in his affliction? Is he really? Is there anything in Jesus that's lacking? For those of you who've been a Christian for a while, I'm just going to put you on the spot. Do you think there's anything lacking in what Jesus has accomplished and in his affliction? Is there anything lacking? Now, how do you know that? We're not scholars. There's people smarter than us. How do we know that there's nothing lacking? Because the Holy Spirit who lives in you and lives in me speaks to us, right? And you know that when Christ went to the cross for you, he accomplished all that was ever needed, right? But the word-for-word translation here gets a little jumbled because it doesn't jump across. There's nothing wrong with what the author has said. There's nothing wrong with what the original text said. It's just when it gets translated into our language, something falls off, doesn't it? Now, now some people would argue well, that's good because it makes you and I research, right? And that's true. It makes us study harder for reading the ESV or the NIV or the NASB, these other translations. But there's just something just right in your face about the message that says that's not what's happening here, is it? Now, before you get confused about this suffering, this idea of what's being communicated, we're not talking about the inconvenience of Christians. And this is where we've lost the whole idea of what persecution is. Some of you think, oh, Lord, it's been a bad day. I woke up and the car didn't start. So I laid hands on the car. I got my anointing oil out. I put a cross on the front of the hood. And God's going to show up and make this car start, right? I'm under heavy persecution. No, you're not. You're just being an idiot moron Christian. You're getting to the wimpy part, okay? I'm just going to be real with you for a second, okay? We've lost this idea of what real persecution, what Paul's really going through. I love in the message, he says, I'm glad I'm in jail and you're not. Persecution is when the very name of Jesus that you claim to hold on to is your faith, that you begin to be persecuted because you would connect your name to his. And the people look at you and have a supreme hatred because of your faith. Not that they inconvenience your life. This is harsh stuff. If you really want to understand this, grab a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. I'm going to send you a link today if I have your email. And Fox's Book of Martyrs is free. Y'all like free? Free. It's free on the web, okay? And you can go and get free. Jake's all about free. And you can start to read about some of these early church leaders and what real persecution look like. And this is what we're talking about when they say that joy is a suffering for the mystical body. Now, what does that mean? Christ lives in you. You are the body of Christ on earth. Now, Jesus has a physical body. He's in heaven. That's real. We can talk about that later if you don't understand that. But he also has a body on earth. It's the church. Everyone who professes him as their savior. 
And that means he is here amongst us in one another. We can see him still alive and at work, and that's his mystical body. And people that really understand that they're supposed to be a Christian understand that real persecution, real suffering is a part of the journey, right? Because they look at Jesus' life and they're like, well, God didn't withhold it from him. In fact, it cost him this for our salvation. So therefore, that's a normal part of the Christian journey. And so as you begin to understand this, you start to understand guys like Polycarp. He's actually a guy who was a disciple of John. He hung out with John. He's the one that wrote the book of John, the Gospel of John. And Polycarp died very early on. He was just one disciple away from Jesus. So you got John, then Polycarp. And he was pulled out by a bunch of Roman um, citizens and pulled out by the Roman government. And because he was professing the name of Christ and would not submit to the rulership of Caesar, he was hauled out into the middle of the square and asked to recant. In other words, to reject his faith. He said, no. He says, but can I give you lunch first? What a guy, right? So the guards that came to get him, he serves him lunch. And he actually loves on him a little bit. And they said, is there one, any one last request you have before we execute you? He said, yeah, can I get an hour of prayer? And so for one hour, Polycarp prayed. What do you think he was praying for? He was praying for the strength that's central to the Christian faith, that he wouldn't fail Jesus he was not praying to be safe. He was praying that he would not lose his testimony, his witness on who Christ is. And he was brought out and he was put there and he was asked to recant. Here's what he said. He said, 80 and six years I have served him and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they lit the fire. This guy was tied to a, a post, and they put the, the bundle around him, they lit a fire, and interestingly enough, the flames would not consume him. In fact, they were so aggravated, the flames wouldn't consume him, one of the soldiers finally put his spear through his side to kill him, and his blood put out the fire, and that's where he died. This guy was amazing. Another place you can read about him is in a book called Play the Man, which we started to read with some of the guys in our group. And when you read about this guy, he was a guy's kind of guy. And when you read about him, you realize this is what suffering looks like, persecution looks like. It's not the inconvenience of us or health ailments that we have. This is what the early church was dealing with, and they were not wimpy at all. These were some pretty verbose people. Another book that I read early on, if it helps you, anybody read this one? It's called Jesus Freaks. DC talked about this out years ago. Some of the younger people in the band said, nope, not heard it. must be old because you're an old fart. And that's what they told me, all right? Anybody read this? There's two volumes of it. And it's interesting because they cover from the very first of the church to all the way up to the 2000s of different people that really are facing persecution worldwide. I want to read just one of them for you that's a short one because I want us to understand when he says that they found it as a joy to suffer what they really meant when they said suffer. Listen to this one, which is, I think, just absolutely fascinating. This one happened in Pakistan, and it's pretty interesting. But the one that really gets me is one that happened not far from here near a little teeny town in a communist area of Cuba. And they were having secret meetings, secret Christian meetings. And in these secret Christian meetings, what happened was the communist guards stormed in and they said, stop your meeting. It was a very small gathering. It was a very small church. And they said, if you'll spit on the Bible, we'll let you leave. This is a true story. This happened in the late 70s. If you spit on the Bible, we'll let you leave. And each person praying for forgiveness, went forward, and they spat on the Bible. A 16-year-old girl walked forward, wiped the Bible off, and said, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
And the communist guard shot her. And these people counted it a joy to be sacrificed on behalf of Christ. Because they understood what Jesus had done for them. Christianity for us in this country is easy. But it can get really, really hard for people that are living out their faith. And when I read stories like that, it makes me think about the things that I complain about in my faith. I don't know about you. Here's, this is from Open Doors USA, which is a website you can go to. And here's the stats today. 345 Christians are killed for their faith this month, every month. That's the stat for the year. 105 churches and Christian buildings are burned or attacked worldwide. 219 Christians are detained without trial, arrested, and sentenced, and imprisoned. This is what real suffering looks like. And yet we here in the States pray for safety. I'm glad Tony was here. Uh, I'm, I, I love to serve in the Boy Scouts, and there's a typical Boy Scout prayer, and I couldn't help but think of it, Tony, today. And here's the typical Boy Scout prayer. Every, every time we start Boy Scouts, right, we say, hey, will somebody lead prayer, and someone always volunteers, and here's the prayer. It's the same one every time, and it doesn't matter who gives it. Here's the prayer. Lord, thanks for getting us here safe. Hope we have a good meeting and give us safe travel home. It's ingrained in us, whether we realize it or not. We pray for things like safety, and that's not what we're supposed to pray for. What we're supposed to pray for is strength. So don't pray for my safety. Pray for my strength. Pray for your strength. Pray for the strength of your brothers and sisters across the world that are still giving their lives for this good news, that are giving their lives for this gospel. One of the things I want to tell you about that I think should encourage you is, if nothing more, it should cause you to pray more for the world, and especially the worldwide Christian uh, population, but also should help you engage more missions, shouldn't it? Because these people are on the front edge of it. And some people don't know this, and I'm not always good about giving details. It's just not my thing, but um, I'm trying to get better at it. Uh, Over 12%, by the way, of every offering we collect here at the church goes to missions. I don't know if you knew that. No questions asked. It's already been designated to missions. Over 5% or 5% every first Sunday goes to the deacons fund for missions so they can actually meet the needs of people that are suffering and working through issues. And some of you recently have started to give to Puerto Rico and and we've almost funded uh, the project that we're going to do down there. And some of you have even started to fund a generator that he needs so that the next time he gets wiped out by a hurricane down in Puerto Rico, he won't lose electricity. This is a giving church I love the fact that you do that, and that's engaged in missions, but I also want to ask you to pray deeply for these folks. Um, We also recently had uh, the baby bottles that came in. If you see the baby bottles out at the Welcome Center, it's for the Pregnancy and Crisis Center, right? Another way that we can missionally give. You all give so faithfully. I love that. I want you to continue to give because you are a generous church, but also pray. Pray for people who are going through this. So So that's when you think about what your day's like and how bad it is, pick up one of these books. And it'll change the way you think about how your day is going bad because that's what it's like in the world today and what it was like in the early church. And that's what Paul was looking forward to was his own martyrdom. The second thing when you think about this passage is the mystery provides a simple hope for all people. It's not exclusive. This mystery that's being talked about in the passage, it provides a simple hope for all people. And so here was the problem. The Jews thought that they were very exclusive in this relationship they had with God, and that began to sink into the leadership, and it began to sink into the very culture. NIV renders it this way. It says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. And I love this, the hope of glory, right? That's one that's almost in every one of the literal translations, which I love that phrase, Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's one thing I was like, man, Eugene, I wish you'd have left that one in there. That one's really good, right? But, but his paraphrase is also very good when he says, this mystery has been kept in the dark for a long time, 
but now it's out in the open. So what he was saying was this hope that God had for all people has always been his, his game. It's always been his hope. But somehow it got diluted and lost in religious activity and religious observance. And now through Christ, this secret's been known because of you. So what he's communicating is when you look at a Christian, you should see the hope of glory. You should see a joy that resonates inside them that when people see it, they're like, that's different. That person is contagious. This hope of glory of this transformation that's happening inside them should transform everything about them. In fact, the church should be the least bigoted place. It should be the least racist place. Can I get an amen on that one? It should be the least place where anybody's judged for any kind of lifestyle or background. Reality. Doesn't mean they shy away from the truth, but all people should be available to this hope that lives inside of us. All people should be able to experience this. Doesn't matter whether you agree with them, doesn't matter what their political background is, doesn't matter what their lifestyle is, that you and I should so resonate the joy that Christ has put down inside of us that they're so attracted to it that once they experience this transformation, this reality of a heart transformation with Jesus, that then their life changes. And then people go, what happened? That's what was happening in the church. And Paul was saying, this hope of glory changes everything. And it's a mystery. It's a mystery because it's not religious activity. You didn't, you, know, you didn't start doing certain steps and you walked through these steps and you became a better religious person. There was a radical transformation that happened in the lives of people when they got a hold of this Jesus. And their life was so changed that everyone around them went, whoa. I love it. The mystery in a nutshell is just this, right? Look at how he renders it. Christ is in you, so therefore you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. That's amazing. It's that simple. We preach Christ. Paul could have preached philosophy, wisdom, and he could have dazzled us with his, just how his, his education, but he wouldn't do it. He just wanted you and I to know this living, breathing relationship that's only available in Jesus. I heard it said this way one time. I don't know who coined this phrase, but they said it this way. They said, uh, you may be the only Bible someone reads. You ever thought about that? That you and I may be the only Bible someone reads. That their concept of what faith is, their concept of what it means to be a Christian, their concept of Scripture might just be the way you or I live out faith in front of them. And if that were true, what would it look like? Would they see the hope of Christ? Or would they see the hypocrisy of American Christianity? Which would they see? Because they're going to see one or the other or somewhere between those spectrums. And that is what it's what's really at the heart of this passage. The third thing is, is what my wife tells me all the time, and my grandfather used to tell me, they used to tell me all this all the time, kiss. And they weren't talking about affection. What's it mean? Keep it simple, stupid. Yeah, and I just thought, this is right here. We don't need to be eggheaded about our faith. We don't need to go over the top. We need to keep things simple. Our faith is a simple expression. It doesn't mean it's not deep. It doesn't mean it's not wonderful. It doesn't mean there's not a mystery to this faith, but it's simple, I love it in the ESV, it says, we, uh, him, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This maturity is not something where you just know a bunch of stuff. It's a maturity where you begin to walk more and more like Jesus. You ever hear someone say, you know what it means in the Greek? Here, I'll give you a real cool secret. Watch this. Do you know what it means when it says everyone in the Greek? Everyone. It's real complicated. It means everybody, okay? So the goal here is that everyone would come into the fullness of this faith. And you don't need to have a, a, a scholar's degree to understand how to walk and read the Bible and grow. Eugene says it this way. He says, we teach in a spirit of profound common sense. 
so that we can bring each person to maturity. I love that. I love that. Which means everyone can understand this beautiful relationship with Jesus. It's as simple, any child can get it. We say it all the time. It's as simple as what? A, B, C. Admitting our sins before God, believing only on what Christ has accomplished for us when he died for our sins on the cross. When he died, that's all that's needed. It's the fullness of this good news. When he died, he came out of that tomb three days later. His death, his burial, his resurrection changed everything. Our time is split in two, right? Because of what he did. And so because of that, we commit our lives to him. And this is the part that sometimes gets us, is this committing. This is the transformation part that you see. Some people admit and they'll believe. They'll get their get-out-of-hell-free card. They'll make their little prayer, and they think they're in. But there's a real transformation of commitment that happens in the life of a genuine and real believer. And when that happens, they change. They change. They have a hunger for the things that are the things of God. The thing that's so sad, I think, in our culture is this. We argue on which translation to read when some people still don't have a Bible to read in the missions world. You can pick any of them. And when you pick one, pick one that speaks to you. It's easy to read. It's understandable. If, you, if you're like, I don't know how to read very well. I'm illiterate. It's okay. You version will read it to you. There's so many ways that it's accessible to you. And what I've noticed is that when someone has really been transformed, this happened for me at 17, the moment I gave my life to Jesus and I was transformed and I committed my life to him, I started reading the Bible like crazy. I started reading it like crazy. I just could not get enough of it because God's wisdom and God's life is inside. And I wanted to know what God wanted to say to me, how God wanted to talk to me. And this happens. This is the commitment. Because you see a real transformation. So if you've never experienced that transformation, there's a, there's, a, there's a chance that you've admitted your sin before Jesus. Maybe that you've even intellectually assented that he died for your sins, but you've never committed your whole life to him because of what he's done. And you see these three dynamics in someone that's really given their life to Christ. So you need to do that. That's not something you need to wait on. Get an understandable translation. And then what you do is you start to spend quiet time with God. You spend time with him every day. And he begins to show the beauty of who he is. So let me ask you a question. When's the last time you experienced the awe and the wonder of Jesus? The awe and the wonder of him. You know, there's moments in personal worship that you should go, wow. My wife and I were reading uh, the message translation, and I found out recently that she, um, she typically reads the NIV. That's what we grew up with. So when we memorized scripture, we memorized it, and the you know, nearly inspired version, but that's our version, like it. And uh, we're reading through it, but sometimes, again, the rendering is difficult to grab hold of. And I didn't know this until just recently, but then she's got a version of the message, Eugene Peterson's translation. She pulls it out, and she'll read it alongside. And she goes, and then when I read it alongside of it, it comes alive and makes sense to me. That's why he translated it that way. She's like, I want to know what God wants to communicate, and when I put the two together, it really helps me. And that's true of you. When you're in your quiet time, read multiple translations if something doesn't make sense to you. Ask other people for help. But more importantly, when you do quiet time, it's not about an academic experience. It's about being in this moment with Christ. He wants to spend time with you. The creator of the universe who died for you wants to spend time with you personally. That he wants you to be able to sit with him and that you might experience the awe and the wonder and the majesty of who he is. And I remember we were reading this particular passage just last night and I watched my wife tear up. Because in that moment, we were just with him, hearing his voice. 
And when you hear his voice, especially through scripture, it just grabs your heart, doesn't it? Those of you that love scripture, doesn't it grab you? And you're in awe and you're in wonder. And this is not something exclusive for someone that has an education. It's for all people. So if you've never had that, here's what I'm asking you to do this week. Would you make an appointment and share Jesus with your friends? So make an appointment. First for you to have a quiet time with Jesus if you don't have that. And then whatever he does in your life, does he show up? Does he speak? Does he reveal something about his heart, reveal something about the world, reveal something about your family? Whatever he does, share it with your friends. Not in a judgmental way, but in, I can't believe the God of the universe wanted to say this to me. And so therefore, I just want to share what he said to me with you. And do that with the people that are closest to you. Because I guarantee it'll impact them. They will see the hope of glory in you. And if you've never experienced the hope of glory, don't wait. Admit your sin before God. Put all of your hope and trust only in Christ. And commit your life fully to him. I guarantee it'll be the very best decision you've ever made. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you want your word to be relatable to us, understandable. That when you wrote the Bible, it's not just a religious text. When you inspired the men and the women who penned your words, that when you did that, you wanted that to leap off the page and into our hearts. There certainly is study that we need to do. There certainly is tools that we need to learn. But your spirit is able to communicate all the truth that we need. God, for each of us, let us start connecting with you on a daily basis, wanting to know what you have to share, that we could experience you and be in all of your love and your passion for us. God, let us not be wimpy, especially if we're faced with difficult decisions, to make a stand for you and what's right in a world that sometimes says different things are right, that we wouldn't worry about what the world thinks, but we'd be more concerned about what you think and what you're sharing with us. And God, let us not be exclusive in our faith, but inclusive, allowing all people to draw near, regardless of how we feel about them or how we've been conditioned to feel, so that they might experience the fullness of who you are and that you might change us in our perspective of them. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.